my timing on things are, is usually really, really terrible. Um, and so I did not time the reading of that particular um, point in the 1689, but I can tell you that it has a tremendous amount to do with what we are going to talk about today in Exodus chapter 15. And so keep that in mind, what was read this morning and what we are talking about today in Exodus chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and find them and pull them out and turn it up to Exodus 15. And we're going to begin reading in just a moment in verse 22. If you remember, Israel, the Hebrew people, have been set free by the power of God. There's no other explanation to say than that, by the power of God. The text often says it was from his outstretched arm, which is a symbol, you know, symbology to know God's power and God's strength. And he delivered them out of slavery from Egypt and from the hand of Pharaoh. They saw with their own eyes and from their own experience the awesome power and might of God to deliver them out of Egypt, but also to make a way across the Red Sea. That's Exodus uh, 14. And they walked across Exodus 14, right, in, on dry land. And they saw how the Egyptians were, were then crushed and drowned as the walls of water that God saved them through, that they were passed through safely, that now they came crashing down and destroyed the army of the Egyptians. In chapter 15, we started last week, the, the response, the almost the immediate response of God's people. And we should all be able to answer this question. What do we do in light of the great salvation of God? What do we do when we experience the great in glorious grace of Jesus Christ, the people of God rejoice. They sing. And they sang a song, which is called in the text the Song of Moses, or the song by the sea. They sang a song about their redemption. Our songs are about our redemption. They sang about the majesty of God. Our songs are about the majesty of God. They sang about the love of God. Our songs are about the love of God. The source of their redemption is outstemming from the love of God. And so they sang of these things. Some of the best and greatest times that we have as a people is when we were all standing and singing in unison together these glorious truths some of the greatest times. This is a, what you would call a high watermark, in a sense, for the nation of Israel. This was their highest of highs. And like I asked last week at the beginning, what, are, what should their response be in light of salvation? We read that was, was singing, but now I ask again, now what? What is it? What, it? what do they do now? Where do they go from here? They've, they've been saved. They've worshipped. Now what? Well, the obvious answer is, is you can't stay by the sea because God has promised a promised land for them. And so they can't stay by the sea. And that's right. And as we finish chapter 15, we're going to hear how Israel moves away from Egypt from the Red Sea, and into the wilderness. Let's look at verse 22, and let's read. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, and therefore it was named Mara. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, 
And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep his statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. When they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. From the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. It's, it's crazy and mind-boggling how fast that could happen. Not only do we see that in the Bible, in the text, but I think for, for most of us, if we would like to, we kind of get a span in the sense of our lives, that we can look at areas and points of our lives where, where we see such ebb and flow, where we see such highs and we see such lows. We see that throughout the narrative of the scripture of God's people, the salvation of God's people. We see that within salvation history within the book of Exodus. And so we're studying the book of Exodus, again, not only because Exodus is a part of the Bible, but it shows us these general patterns of, yes, of how God is saving his people for his glory, and we understand that that pattern is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ, that he has provided salvation. We see that exemplified within the New Testament, the salvation of Christ, and the terms that describe our salvation sound very much like the Exodus, like slavery and freedom and judgment and wrath and Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the, the burial of Jesus as he passed through the waters of, the, of death, but then he was raised to life and safe on the other side. We understand the baptism and the symbolism of, of that. So Exodus is not only forecasting for Exodus or Israel and for us the, the, the greater Exodus that would come, right? Deliverance through, through death and the burial and resurrection. But this pattern is also telling us and showing us about the Christian life. The Christian life and the life of the church. The... Um, the great pastor and teacher and theologian and, and martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrote, he said, We too passed through the Red Sea, through the desert, across the Jordan, into the Promised Land. With Israel, we fall into doubt and unbelief, and through punishment and repentance experience, again, God's help and faithfulness. All of this is not mere reverie, but holy, godly reality. We are torn out of our own existence and set down in the midst of the holy history of God on earth. And there God dealt with us, and there he still deals with us, our needs and our sins in judgment and grace. And I think Bonhoeffer is correct in this assessment because biblically we understand in the New Testament, again, I've said this to you all a few different times from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul uses this whole story, this whole story of Israel and the Exodus leaving, um, uh, leaving Egypt and their faults and their failures is a teaching illustration for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 6. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings to us on whom the fulfillment of ages have come. In other words, when we read these passages of Israel, the higher highs and their lows, we can relate. We can relate. We know, we know what it feels like to be on the high of the joy and the worship of the Lord 
and in the very moment or the very next moments or even within the next couple hours or the next day or the next three days, whatever it is, we sin. We understand the weaknesses of our flesh. That we sin and we doubt. We begin to question everything because of certain circumstances that may come our way. And here at the end of Exodus 15, this may not be what you expect to happen next. This, this kind of situation is not what we expect after, after such a great experience from the Lord of being delivered and walking through the, the Red Sea with massive walls of water being over them and watching Egypt, their enemy, be destroyed. This may not be what you expect. They did not live happily ever after. Things are not going to be so easy, apparently. And so we get to this series of narratives over the next couple chapters of Israel before they get to Mount Sinai, which is chapter 19. We see where the Lord tests them. He tests his people in a series of four different crises. And this particular one, this first one, is a crisis of water, or the lack thereof. And so after the Lord saved his people... And the, the order is very important, by the way. God saved his people. First and foremost. And then he takes them into the wilderness. Again, we might expect it to be easy from here. Right? To go right into the promised land. From grace to glory. But instead, what do they experience? They experience crisis, tribulation. But this time, not from, from Egypt or man, but bitter providence of nature. The Lord doesn't give them any shortcuts, and neither does he give us shortcuts. They had to go through the wilderness, and it wasn't going to be easy. And in fact, their response to the hardship actually makes it worse. But the journey into the wilderness and the wilderness experiences are necessary for their sanctification and necessary for our sanctification. And here's why. The Lord puts his people, he puts us in tough spots, brothers and sisters, in order to ingrain in us, to chisel in us. Right? You get the idea of chiseling, cutting rock. That's what we are. We are stubborn as rocks, right? To chisel in us a posture, a posture of faith that says in the light of hardship and very hard and difficult things in the midst of crisis and suffering and long days of suffering to say, yeah, this is not good, but I will trust in the Lord. He will one way or another deliver me. That is what he is ingraining in us and is chiseling on our hearts. And what we see is that in Israel, that, that those circumcised uh, hearts so that will come, we will see that they will do just that. But the, the many of them who do not have the circumcised heart, their faith fails over and over and over again. For us, the kingdom of God has come. For the church, we know the kingdom of God has come, but yet we are still in the wilderness. The inauguration of the kingdom has come through Jesus Christ, but it has not been fully realized. Every promise has not been fully uh, been realized just yet. So we understand as the church, brothers and sisters, that even in these days since the coming of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ, that the church of Jesus Christ is in the wilderness. But also personally as individuals, we will walk through days and maybe months or hours or years of being in the wilderness. We understand, yes, we are redeemed. We understand that, that God has given us so much grace. We understand that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But still, we go through 
the wilderness, where it seems like everywhere we turn, the water is bitter. But again, this is to teach us the church, as it was for Israel, that when we are in the wilderness, when life is bitter, we still live by the grace of God. God's grace, brothers and sisters, we know it, it sounds good and it is good. But to many, when they hear God's grace, they, they think of that's easy street. That that's, that's going to make life easy. And to live by God's grace, though, however, means to, to live utterly dependent upon him for everything. That's what it means to live by God's grace. And there is no place that will teach you what it means to be utterly dependent on the grace of God than in the wilderness. No other place. Because that is where everything is stripped away. That is where we need, we need to depend on him even for the very simplest of things like water. And so this first part of the crisis is into the wilderness. I would like to give you two points this morning about being in the wilderness. The first thing about this passage that patterns the life of the church and patterns the, the Christian life is that in the wilderness, there will be difficulty. The wilderness is difficult. That's the sort of the symbolism. They went through a real wilderness, which was hard and difficult. But for us, as we understand, when we go into the, the wilderness of different times and seasons of life, that there is difficulty. It's kind of how we know that's where we are. Verse 22, it says, when, Then Moses made Israel to set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. We can stop just there for a moment. And here we have the, the itinerary. Of, of Israel, and that sets up for us within this itinerary, there's a tone here that I think that Moses is trying to get across to us, and that especially is made in the ESV where it says that Moses made or Moses caused Israel to set out. And what that means is very, I think that indicates to us that Israel from this point was pretty reluctant of leaving the Red Sea, the shore of the Red Sea, and going into the wilderness. Of course, it's not the best idea just to stay by the, the, the Red Sea. The Red Sea gives them sustenance and can provide for them. But they also see on the other side, here's the wilderness. And the wilderness, again, represents difficulty because for them it was a real harsh difficulty. The wilderness of Shur literally means a, a wall, a desert that is complete barren wasteland. For most of us, we're from the East Coast here, and so when we think about the wilderness, or even from Georgia, when we think about the wilderness, we're either thinking about the Okefenokee Swamp, or we're thinking about the mountains in North Georgia, where honestly, from anywhere down there or anywhere up there, within a day's walk, you'll find a gas station and find supplies, or you'll find a store, or you'll find something. You know, to me, I think of the wilderness, I think about going on vacation. I'm thinking about camping, I'm thinking about you know, sleeping out under the stars and having a fire and unplugging and hiking and doing all these things. When it says they went into the wilderness, they weren't going on vacation. They weren't just unplugging for a few days and to recharge. No, they were going into difficulty. They were going into something that was going to be really hard. They were going to face circumstances where they were going to not have enough resources. They were going to run out of resources. The basic necessities of survival, water, food, and shelter, which just so happened to be a part of the crises that are, it, that are coming up. The other thing is, is does Moses really know what he's doing? Does he really know how to lead this amount of people into the wilderness when, when they're going to need all this stuff? None of them have been out of Egypt before. But they know a desert when they see one. It's like the old storybook rhymes, like Ring Around the Rosy or um, the stories of the story of like Hansel and Gretel. Those particular stories and rhymes were made up in order to teach children not to do foolish things. So one of them, in particular, like the Hansel and Gretel story, is to teach them not to go into the wilderness. It's kind of a morbid way to teach them not to go into the wilderness, because they will go in the wilderness and get lost and not find their way out, and then they would lose their children. 
And so we can understand their hesitancy. And certainly we see the, the, the validity of their hesitancy come, come forward, right? They went three days into the wilderness. Again, verse 25, or not 20, yeah, 25, verse 22. They went three days into the wilderness, and what did they do? They found no water. So here they are, three days into the journey, they are out of water. So in just three days, their rations of water are running out. There's none to be found at all. But still they keep going. Verse 23, when they came to Mara, they couldn't drink the water because of Mara, because it was bitter, and therefore they named it Mara. So, so as they go, they go three days into the wilderness, they don't find water, but eventually they come up to an oasis. That's what this is. This is, a, this is an oasis, and, and I'm sure they find some relief. Okay, we found a place, right, where there's going to be water. Praise the Lord. They bend down, they taste the water, and the water is bad. As it says, it is bitter. Not just bad tasting, because you can, you can get over bad tasting water. I grew up in Florida. My water tasted like sulfur and rot, smelled like rotten eggs, and we drank it anyway, and we were like, praise God for water. And it didn't kill us. But this wasn't just stinky water or bitter water. This was bad water. It was undrinkable in a sense that if you drink it, you'll get sick. It's like if you travel overseas in certain parts of the world, in certain countries, you're not supposed to drink the water. You, know, you have to do everything by, a, um, by a, a, a water bottle. But never did I ever think that I, when I went overseas, I never ever, ever thought that I would be dying of dehydration, though. It was just more or less an inconvenience to drink out of a water bottle or to brush my teeth from a, from a water bottle. So, so just a few days right in, I mean, we're talking three days, three, maybe four, maybe five days into this journey, the wheels have just fallen off, right? The wheels have, have fallen off, and everything seems to be working against them. And we can understand this. Why? Because water is essential for life. You need water. Now, again, being East Coast people, we, we're not very acute to that because we have water aplenty everywhere. Isaiah probably knows more about the, necess the necessity of water from Arizona. But water is essential for life. We need water. You need water. They needed water. And, and what's, the, what's, the, uh, um, what's the survival saying that you can only last for, for three days without water? Well, here they are, three days and more. And here the water that they have received is bitter. It's undrinkable. And they named it Mara, which means bitter. And bitter not only because of the taste, but I also think because of the bitterness of how they feel right now. And we know at this moment, we know at this moment, right, they get to the point and all the water problem situation, all this, right, we know this moment. We're, as good Christian people, we we know the answer. I'm a problem solver. I read that and I'm like, here's the answer. Fix it. Here you go. This is what you got to do. You cry out to the Lord. You cry out to God for help. You ask him to give you living water to provide for you. It's kind of like when you, we can read at the text and we can, or when we're reading the text, it's almost like you can scream out, what are you doing, right? Cry out to God. I mean, it was only like three verses earlier, four verses earlier, you were singing to God. They had every reason to believe that God would give them water from anything. He can make water from anything. He can do anything. He has shown his power by his outstretched arm. But again, we have to put ourselves in their shoes. Right? We put ourselves in their shoes in this situation. They had no water. It was gone. They're tapped out. Nothing's left. Water is heavy. You can't carry it very long. One gallon of water weighs about eight pounds. Multiply that by the necessity of about almost a million people. We're talking tons of water that they would have needed to carry them with them. And I'm sure they brought water with them, but to carry that amount of water is virtually impossible. They were dependent upon oases like this for their resupplies along the way. The time that they needed water the most, it was bitter. And so we have to kind of imagine, kind of put ourselves in their spot. Imagine that spot. No water. You're thirsty. You're, you're, you're at that point as an adult, as a parent, you're giving all of your rations to your children. And you're still watching your children dehydrate. 
and thirst and asking, where's the water? Why can't we drink this? This is a real trial. This is a real crisis. And even though they just experienced salvation and joy like none other just a few days ago, now they are in absolute, complete survival mode. And why? Again, let's go back to the beginning because God's providence has led them into the desert. Has led them into the desert. And has even led them to the bitter water at Mara. And again, I hope for I hope for you and for others that that the name Mara has not escaped from you its significance. Because it's a name that we will hear later about, not in our study in Exodus, but later in the Bible, of a woman named Naomi, who because of God's bitter providence in her life, through famine, the death of her husband, the death of her sons, the poverty she experienced, how she was left in a foreign land to see after her daughter-in-laws, Naomi became bitter. In fact, she became so bitter that she told her daughter-in-laws, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Because I am bitter. And again, we hope you know the end of the story. Because the end of that story in Ruth is, is not the bitterness of Mara, but the salvation and the grace and the redemption of God. And in particular, that family. You know, often in our lives, we are, we are led into the wilderness, spiritually. We experience the bitter providence of God. And even sometimes through physical suffering, we experience the bitter providence of God. And we know that the Lord is faithful because he always has been faithful. But suddenly we understand that suddenly when we are put in those places, when it seems like there is nothing left, when there is no water or real supply or no real clear way out, right? We've exhausted every which way to solve the problem or to fix it or to give some kind of relief to the issue. It feels at that place. That even though we know God is faithful, he has always been faithful in that place it seems as if that is, wasn't real at all. And in this fallen world, as a Christian and as a church that's living in the already and not yet, we experience the wilderness. It's easy to think that becoming a Christian, that instantly life would get, get, would get better and easier. It's easy to think that the church has things easy. And yet we know that there still will be temptation, there still will be suffering, but we think we should just go from grace to glory. In the wilderness, there is difficulty. And the Lord leads us into the wilderness, and we'll get to the reasons why in just a moment, but we cannot dismiss the fact that the wilderness is difficult. And it can be bitter. But how should we respond? Isn't that the point, right? Isn't that the point? It's not just that we go in the wilderness and the wilderness is difficult. The point is, how do we as Christians respond? Well, we know how Israel responded. And it was given to us as an example, verse 24, it says, And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? They go to Moses and they complain. Now, I want to tell you that, that it's not wrong for the people to go to their leader with this kind of problem. It's not wrong to go to Moses and go, Okay, Moses, now what do we do? Right? They have a real genuine need, and this is a real immediate crisis. The problem, though, is that the bitterness was 
the bitterness of Mara and the bitter water exposed in their attitude, not just the bitterness of the water, but the bitterness of their attitude in their hearts. And that one unfortunate word in that verse describes their response. They grumbled. They didn't ask, they grumbled, which means they murmured or they complained, or we can also call it whining. They grumbled and complained and whining, which is never a legitimate way to communicate. Do you hear me on that? It's never a legitimate way to communicate. It is a passive-aggressive way to doubt and to cast doubt that the one you are following or the one that you're trusting in has failed. It's a way to coerce and to manipulate in order to get your way. That's what grumbling and complaining and murmuring is. And this is not, listen to me, is not a learned human response. Grumbling is an ingrained, natural, sinful response of the human heart. Children grumble and complain to get what they want. They have to be taught otherwise. They have to be taught to use their words. We often say to our children, use your words. When they're screaming out or they're saying something you don't understand because they're whining about something, we ask them, use your words, communicate, look to me in, in my eyes. And when they say something that they, they want, then we would say, ask me. Use a question, not a statement. Complaining and grumbling is a statement, not asking. And so this is not a a learned response. This is something that is a part of the flesh, of, of natural man. And what we see through, honestly, throughout the rest of the, the Old Testament is that Israel will grumble and murmur and complain over and over and over again. And it points out two things. It shows us. Grumbling and complaining points out two things about them. Number one, it shows their immaturity. It shows their immaturity, right? To, to be moved so far on one side of the pen, pendulum with their, of the highs and highs and worship God all the way to the other side. To shift that far is called immaturity because there's no middle ground. It also shows their faithlessness. This was a faithless response. An absolute faithless response. Remember back in chapter 14, verse 31, Israel it says of Israel that Israel believed the Lord. And they believed Moses. They trusted. Three, four days later, out the window. That's gone. You know, when it, and so when it comes to our spiritual growth, when it comes to our maturity and our holiness and our sanctification and growing in Christ into the image of Christ, the central problem with us is our sin, right? We know that. We understand that. It is our sin. And sin is conceived from where? Sin is conceived from unbelief. And what is unbelief? Faithlessness. The root of all of our sin, the root of your grumbling and complaining, the root of my grumbling and complaining and passive aggressiveness to get my way, to manipulate things to get my way, is faithlessness, is unbelief. Again, I'm not denying that this was a real problem. That's a huge point. The wilderness is hard. It's difficult. This is a real problem. This is a real crisis. Going to Moses and asking him a question is a good thing. That's understandable. But that's not what they did. They grumbled. They complained. They murmured. They doubted. They didn't go to the Lord in faith. They didn't ask Moses to lead them in prayer. They complained. And they murmured. And that, my friends, my brothers, my sisters, beloved, that is inexcusable. Because to murmur and complain is faithlessness that rejects the leadership that God has placed over them and his provision. And so right here within this, this text, that even when we're in the wilderness and we, and we face such difficulty, our response, brothers and sisters, should never 
be grumbling and complaining. And this is a strong warning among so many other places within the Old Testament and the New Testament that the strong warning to those who have a complaining or murmuring or grumbling spirit. This is an example to us as the church, right? To not grumble as some of them did. To not give in to such an evil. Right? It's not a sin to bring our problems before God, to pray to Him and to ask for help. That's not doubting. That's not lacking faith. That's trusting. That's leaning on Him and asking Him to provide. What is sin is to have a complaining or murmuring spirit because what that does is that poisons not only your heart, it poisons the communion of saints and it robs you of joy, but it robs all of us of joy. And all the joy of serving God. Again, as I've said, it's a passive aggressiveness. It's a passive aggressiveness, right? To, to manipulate someone else to get what you want. And brothers and sisters, anytime you try to manipulate someone to get what you want, that is sin. That is sin. And we know that in our flesh... We know what is the easiest thing to do when we are in the wilderness and we face difficulty. The easiest thing to do is to grumble and complain. That is the easiest thing. That is the, that is the quick road out, right? That seems like the quick road out. And the reason why, because we think that the way to get rid of bitterness is to add more bitterness. We think that that's what's going to help. We try to add something else to cover up the taste. When I was a kid... My parents used to feed us liver and onions. And man, did I hate it. And me and my brothers, we would do whatever we could to cover up that taste. We would try to hold our nose, thinking that that would um, put our taste buds in subjugation if we give them a lack of air. I don't know what the whole point was, but we tried to. And our, our, our latest, um, or the last thing I remember us doing and trying, we used to try to just smear that thing in ketchup. I'm not even a fan of ketchup. I, we just smeared that thing in ketchup. Didn't work. Grumbling and complaining is like trying to cover up liver and onions with ketchup. It may think that it, we may think that that's the easiest way to do it. Because it seems like that is the easiest way. Because grumbling and complaining, it, that produces instantly instant gratification, doesn't it? It produces an instant gratification, and that's what we want. We want gratification. Our flesh wants gratification. It wants justification of what we think or what we believe or whatever it is that we are complaining about. We want a response from someone else, right? So we manipulate through the complaining and grumbling. And so we will complain about even the littlest things. We don't like how a situation's being he uh, handled. We've seen grumbling and complaining in the smallest of ways, even in churches of the color of the carpet or the chairs, whatever it may be. In our hearts, brothers and sisters, we can always justify our grumbling and complaining. And we do it everywhere. And so if we shouldn't grumble and complain, if that's the example that's being led here, there's a negative. This is a negative example that we are not to be, right? And so if this is a negative example, we shouldn't grumble, even in such worthy situations, such as a crisis of not having any water, then certainly we should not grumble in some of the trivial and small ways that we grumble and complain about. Now listen, there are certainly right ways and certainly justification for some things that we complain about. But undoubtedly, undoubtedly, we need to be very careful on our grumbling and complaining. It is a sin. There are bitter places in the wilderness. This is a bitter place in the wilderness. But what I want you to see here is that even though places in the wilderness may be bitter, Places may be bitter. We may experience bitterness. But that doesn't mean that they have to make us bitter. The place and the time and the season may be Mara. 
But Mara doesn't have to be our hearts. We understand the problem at Mara wasn't the bitter water. It was the bitterness of their hearts and the immaturity and the faithlessness of Israel. The Lord could have given them, they walked up to the oasis, and it could have been raspberry blue Kool-Aid sitting there waiting for them. But instead, the Lord gave them bitter water to show them in their hearts that they have bitterness. Brothers and sisters, the wilderness is difficult, but it has the purpose to expose in us and you and in me our sin and our bitterness and to root it out. To root out our immaturity, to root out our bitterness and our faithlessness so that we would grow to trust in the Lord and not grumble. The second thing about this passage that patterns the life of the church and the Christian life is that the wilderness teaches us about the response of God to his people. So we certainly see the example how none of us should be, right? The negative example of do not grumble. That's what we, we don't want to be. We want to resist that. We want to not only see it, we understand that that could be in our heart potentially, but we want to resist it. We want to walk away from it. We don't want to be that way, right? We don't want that. As Paul says, the warning against the evil. It's just given to us an example so we do not, um, so we do not respond in evil. But these last verses, they teach us how the Lord responds to his people. In verse 25, Moses, what does Moses do? Moses, in response to the people grumbling and complaining to him, he desperately cries out the Lord to the Lord. Moses is the one who's faithful, isn't he? Moses is the one who, who prays. And, uh, and, and then he, he prays there in verse, in verse 25. And what does the Lord do? He tells Moses to take a piece of wood and to throw it into the water. Right? The water at Marah. And when he threw it in, the water at Mara, once was bitter, becomes, becomes sweet. Now, before we get to the, to the actual real miracle that took place here, let's go to the, to the first miracle here. And that is the miracle of God's grace to help a bunch of grumbling complainers. Why would God answer Moses' prayer? And so doesn't this show us the disposition that our Lord, our God, has toward his people? That we, like a bunch of sinners, like we read in our 1689 this morning, like we, we a bunch of grumblers and a bunch of complainers, that God gives his grace. And just like we sang last week, the song, he gives us more, or gives more grace. When we have exhausted our stores of endurance, when, we, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, his giving is only begun. God gives his grace to his people. And his grace is manifested in what? In this miracle. This miracle to, to hear, to heal the water. And in healing the water, we see, a, we see a continued pattern of God interacting to provide and to give and to, to care for his people. First, uh, you, hear, you remember earlier in Exodus, right, when the, the first plague took place, what did God do? God took the good waters of the Nile, and what did he do? He poisoned them. And he turned it all into all into blood, judging Egypt. But here, what does God show? God shows that he can take bitter waters and he can make them right. They can heal them. And the second is that this miracle shows us a pattern of, of how God continues to heal, heal the waters. We see this pattern continue throughout the Bible. In 2 Kings chapter 2, the prophet Elijah is taken up to heaven and then Elisha takes his place as the prophet of the Lord to his people. And at the end of that chapter, in chapter 2, it says that he came to the city of Jericho. And the men of Jericho come to the prophet of God, Elisha, and they tell him 
that they are having a water crisis, that all of their water is bad, and it's so bad that nothing would grow, and it was killing people. And so what does Elisha do? Elisha takes a bowl, he puts some salt in it, and he throws that into the spring of the water, and that heals the water. And it says that so that neither death nor miscarriage would ever come from it ever again. So we see this pattern of throwing something into the, the water to heal the water. And so here's the pattern of the two prophets, Moses and Elijah. They're healing bad water. And then in John's gospel, we see Jesus at the wedding of Cana. What does he do? The, the wine ran out, but the party was still hopping. And Jesus, being asked by his mom to turn the water into wine, to make more wine, to get more wine. And that's what he does. He turns the water into wine, and he makes the finest of wines. And I think this place where the prophet is, throws this piece of wood in the water, and uh, Elisha heals the water by throwing salt into the water, is pointing us to the very fact of the Son of God, that the great prophet, Jesus Christ, the greatest of prophets, who doesn't just make the water good to drink or heals the water, but he makes the water into the finest of wines. And he shows that he is the greater. And so the miracle here that God works for his people, not for those who asked in faith, but for those who grumbled and complained, he graciously gives his people good water. Graciously gives them good water. He takes once what, once what was bitter and he makes it sweet. He heals it. Again, brothers and sisters, as we talked about, the wilderness is difficult. It's, it is hard. And in our hearts, you know, we can make it harder by making it bitter. And we must fight against that, to not grumble and not complain. But instead, we understand that we are to pray and trust in the Lord and, 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 and be um, humble in receiving what his will may be in that, in that time. But underneath, we, we put deep into our hearts and we, and we store this in our hearts, this very truth that when we go into those difficult times, when times get lean, when times get tough, when water gets bitter, when life gets bitter, when there's bitter providence and difficulty that come our way, we trust in this God, our Lord, our God, who is our healer. And we understand that the wilderness is not the final destination and that ultimately one day will be that fine wine. He will always provide and he will always give what you need by his grace. Even to undeserved sinners who are complaining and grumbling. And he loves us. And he wants to give us his grace. He wants to teach us to trust in him for everything even for the most basic necessities of life. A sign of maturity in Christ is knowing that you can trust in the Lord that he will provide even when you do not know how. And that's a hard lesson. That's a hard spot to grow. And we understand that it takes several times to learn, but we are meant to learn it. And that takes place, that training takes place in the wilderness. You get to the second half of verse 25. I don't know why it's split up that way, but it is. Verse 25 says, Then there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you diligently listen to my voice or to the voice of the Lord your God and do, which is what, do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep his statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you that I have put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord you hear. So, so here what we see here, we see a couple things. First, the Lord gave them a statute and a rule, and second, it says he tested them. Now, listen, it doesn't say that the statute or the, what the statute or the rule was, unless he's talking about verse 26, which very likely it could be. But we understand that in this whole idea, the statute and also the blessing and the cursing of their obedience is a precursor of the law that is to come, right? So in a sense, God is, is giving them this idea of defining the relationship that I am your God and you will be my people. It is all well and good to sing and to worship. That is good. That is the right and proper response to the salvation of God. But so is obedience to the, to the voice of God. And that's what we see in here. 
right? That's what we're saying. Obedient. Be obedient, right? So freedom from Pharaoh doesn't mean now, Israel, you can just do whatever you want. Freedom from serving a tyrant meant freedom to serving the Lord their God. And serving the Lord itself is true freedom by being obedient to him. The statute and rule, listen, was not the basis of their salvation. Remember, they had already been delivered. I told you that the order of salvation, God has saved them already and brought them out of, out of Egypt. These particular statutes and rules was for their sanctification, for the building up of their faith and trust in their God. And of course, we understand that this corresponds directly to the gospel. None of us has achieved our own salvation because of our obedience. None of us have. There is none righteous. No, not one. Not one of us could or can save ourselves. And we understand that that is the good news of the gospel. We can't save ourselves. We needed help. We were left desperate and dying and drowning under the ocean. We needed a Savior to come save us. And praise God, by His grace, He did so. He came and saved His enemies. But, the work is foremost and completely to the word, but obedience to the voice of God, the word of God, comes as a fruit of God's work to save us and transform us, to make us new and to give us a new heart and a new desire to, to not sin, i.e. not grumble, not give in to selfishness, but to holiness and righteousness that is for his glory. Again, one of my favorite verses, Galatians 5, 1. For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Right? Freedom from sin doesn't mean freedom from more sin. That's submitting back to the yoke of slavery. That's submitting back to sin. Freedom from sin means what? It means obedience to God's word, which is freedom itself. There could be no highest level of joy in the life of a Christian than to be obedient to the Lord, their God. It is only the flesh that lies to us. It is only the evil one that lies to us and tells us to, to make us believe that obedience to God's word means oppression. That's foolishness and a lie. Grace and obedience teaches us this. It also says that God, that God tested his people, right? Presumably, this is what happened at Mara, and they failed the test. What did they do? They grumbled instead of trusting and asking in prayer. So the people, so people like to ask when it comes to this, when they think about God testing people, they like to ask, why would God test people? Why would God test them if they're only going to fail? Doesn't that sound cruel? Have you ever heard that question before? I know I have. Well, first of all, the Lord's purposes in testing his people, the Lord's testing and bringing his people into, into the wilderness to test them was not to cause them to fail. That wasn't the point. Was not, to, was not for them to fail. James 1.13 very clearly tells us that the Lord does not tempt us to sin. The Lord does not tempt you to sin. The purpose of him leading you into the wilderness is not for you to sin and to stumble and to sin. But the purpose of his tempting is to do what? Is to reveal the weakness of faith and to build you up to trust in him. And that is why he is giving us his word. To help us live for his glory. And so the rest of the verse in verse 26 we see the pattern of the covenant relationship being built, the promise and warning, warnings, like the blessing of obedience and curses. If you do this, I will do this. If you don't do this, I will do this. And they, as he says here, they will match what happened in Egypt, which is not good. That should be very fresh on their mind of, of what disobedience would mean for them. And it's to teach them that when the law comes to be obedient. And it's a great blessing. We understand as Christians, right? We understand this. It is a great blessing to understand, to come to learn what it means to trust and obey. And when we see this text about being in the wilderness, to being at Mara, we understand, the, I think the great, um, the center, the central part of this passage is the, is the point of teaching us that the Lord is our healer. 
Yes, there's the, the statutes. Yes, there's the necessity, obedience, and the warning of sin and the difficulty of the, of the wilderness. But I think the very highlight, the point of this passage is for us to see that the Lord is our healer. Yahweh Rapha. And through this crisis and through sin, he is teaching them, I am your healer. What do we need most in our sin? We need to be healed. We need to be healed. In Israel, over and over again, they are going to fail to keep God's law. They are going to fail to keep God's covenant. They're going to fail to keep God's statute and his rule. They are going to fail. In fact, what we understand throughout the whole Testament is that really Israel is just one big failure on their part. I mean, it really is. But just like us, we are great big failures. We couldn't keep God's law. God didn't say, well, the Jews failed, so let's try the Gentiles now. No. We're great big failures. We disobey God's word. We, we respond in bitterness. We grumble to the slightest complication and discomfort. We are selfish sinners. We cannot keep the law. We understand that. We sin, we sin, and we keep on sinning. Mara is showing us the bitterness that's in them as it's showing the bitterness in us. And the idea that brothers and sisters to keep God's statutes is going to take a changed and transformed heart. We cannot heal ourselves. We cannot be obedient to God without a transformed heart. The water at Mara was not the only thing that was sick and spoiled and bitter. But it was their hearts, it was their hearts that needed healing, as it is our hearts that needed healing. And our only healer, Yahweh Rapha, is Jesus Christ, who we know from the New Testament. We see throughout the Gospels, Jesus Christ showing over and over again, throughout all his miracles, how he himself is Yahweh Rapha. He heals and he heals and he heals again until he goes to the cross and he heals the sick souls and the sick hearts that need to be transformed. That is our God. That is our Savior. And so the Lord's response to us, not only in his grace to heal these waters, but his grace to send his Son, that in our sickness, that in the bitterness and sickness of our, of our hearts, by his grace, he sent the provision of his Son, who was perfectly obedient to the law of God. He fulfilled every statute. He passed every test. Obedience, brothers and sisters, listen to me on this, begins first with faith. Obedience begins with faith, to trust and to believe and to rely on the person and work of Jesus Christ for your salvation. And then transformation from there, our obedience then becomes a joy. We know all too well in the many different ways that we are led into the wilderness and all the very many facets of things we can talk about of what the wilderness can be, we know that the wilderness is difficult. But brothers and sisters, God's word is teaching us, God's word is showing me that it has a purpose to build you up, to exercise in you, to exercise, right? To exercise, to get, build strength in you, to steady your faith, right? To exercise your faith in the Lord, to make it stronger. So that your first reaction and first response to such things is not grumbling or complaining or whining, but it is to, provide, to pray and to trust in the Lord that he will heal and that he will provide and that he will guide just like he did Israel. And we see the very thing in the very last verse, don't we? He led them from Mara to Elam. And there, where was, what was in the Elam? There was abundance. There were 12 springs of water. And there were 70 palm trees, good food and good water that did what? That renewed them and strengthened them and replenished them. 
And there's certainly some good symbolism. We can talk about the 12, the 12 springs with the 12 tribes and the 70 palms with the 70 elders. And, and so there's plenty of, of, of springs and water for all, all the people. But the important thing here is this, brothers and sisters, is that even though we may be led into the wilderness one way or another, the Lord will always fully provide for his people. He will always fully provide for you. And the example of this is not Mara necessarily. The great example of this is Jesus Christ. If he has loved you and has given you all things in Christ, why would he withheld, withhold anything else? We are justified by his grace, but we are also being sanctified and held. Like we read this morning, the perseverance of the saints. We are preserved, brothers and sisters, by the grace of God. Mara is not the end. Mara is now. Mara is not eternity. Jesus is. Christ is. And so I, I end with the question this morning. Dear Christian, do you believe that? And all of God's people say, and amen.